A wee lorina of worth cov, wake a mead moon a man bio in a ear och shachten gron, ye way luggis me luggas cons. Ag fogert fawn are here on a. Welcome to the Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmoodlock. Like Mary Magdalene in the Gnostic Gospel, I am here to take you on an ascent through the spheres of the universe to fight each of the demonic powers and rulers of the air. Going back in time, today we have the world ruled by data. Before that, it was industrial capital, based on white supremacy, anti-blackness, and indigenous dispossession. Then before that, we had merchant capital, people trading, increasing value, moving commodities make value in motion between the great ancient empires of the world and where do those ancient empires grow from and get their power it's from the grain state the original class society right the domestication of some human beings by other human beings and then coinciding with maybe some of the earliest waves of monopolization of surplus we have patriarchy all of these processes, of course, are reversible, uneven. Some places we have all different combinations of these. Certain indigenous societies in the Americas have already achieved, overthrown feudalism and achieved full communism in a way. I'm thinking here of the Maya. This is what they say about themselves, right? They had a hierarchical society based on exploitation, but they abandoned their cities and they went back to production for use by the producers. So it's been done, right? And communism is what the pros call a classless and therefore stateless society. Any society that's classless will also be stateless. My friend Fred says it like this, the state is by no means a power forced on society from without. Just as little is it the reality of the ethical idea, the image and reality of reason, as some people might say. Rather, it is a product of society at a certain stage of development. It is the admission that this society has become entangled in an insoluble contradiction with itself, that it has cleft into irreconcilable antagonisms which it is powerless to dispel. But in order that these antagonisms, classes with conflicting economic interests, might not consume themselves and society in sterile struggle, a power seemingly standing above society became necessary for the purpose of moderating the conflict, of keeping it within bounds of order. And this power, arisen out of society, but placing itself above it, and increasingly alienating itself more and more from it, is the state. And then the final demon that we have to grapple with is patriarchy, right? Uh, the creation of the father, the overthrow of Mother right was the world historical defeat of the female sex. The man took command in the home also. The woman was degraded and reduced to servitude. And we still have that today in all kinds of various forms and combinations. These powers of the air coexist. You almost never find one of them alone. And if you drive one of the demons out, you will find 50 more come in to take its place. We're probably going to have to take them all down at once. It's up to us uh, to develop, I think, a new society. And everyone says this today, right? There's nobody who thinks that we can keep going on the way we've been going on without a major thorough change, right? And I hope that in this podcast, I'm going to go through a lot of texts, uh, mainly from literature, religion, philosophy, these kinds of fields as they're normally defined, I, myself, am a professor of Japanese literature at a university in Tokyo, so that my specialization is pre-modern Japan, but I do have quite a bit of knowledge of literature and other materials from quite a variety of times and places as it happens, and so I'd really like to take us on a journey, a tour of relations of production in a, this a great variety of times and places, particularly pre-modern. Uh, one, it's my specialty, and also I think it gets short shrift in a lot of this kind of thinking, a lot of this kind of discourse, but things before capitalism, 
I think that industrial capitalism is obviously very, very important and central in world history. And one thing that I would look forward to getting into here is fiction. There's proletarian fiction from modern Japan, as well as philosophy and theory that is poorly known outside of a small group of specialists, right? So amateur that I am in that regard, I look forward to covering modern class struggles as well. But uh, we may focus a bit more on the pre-modern stuff uh, because I think that I, we actually have quite a lot of fresh takes on more ancient uh, phenomena, which people overwhelmingly don't normally read with class struggle in mind. And the, the secret that I have to share with you is that relations of production, what is your relationship to production, is one of the most important questions you can ask, right? Especially when you get down to what we might call a material level. The precise question, what is the material in any given situation, is open to all kinds of interesting interpretation. It gets twisted. It becomes an object of class struggle in itself, right? Um, class struggle, by the way, is within those relations of production, right? Uh, well, we have the reason why we have relations of production is that production has been divided ever since one group of human beings enslaved, biologically speaking, we might say domesticated another group of human beings. Really, archaeologically now suggests that, and here I'm relying on the ideas of James C. Scott, whose book, against the grain is fantastic and he uses this term the grain state to talk about the earliest states uh, and the earliest class societies because uh, they are all centered around growing some grain which uh, although very quickly you get some kind of religion centered around a great father god or sky god who has provided this grain as a great uh, gift to the people and the aristocrats who do not grow the grain uh, are the descendants of those gods and so on. So the first grain states were really formed not out of the inherent superiority, the inherent desirability of hierarchical class society for survival, nutrition, anything like this, right? hunter-gatherers, pastoralists, um, the last modern hunter-gatherers who survived into the 20th century in southern Africa. Estimates range from 13 to 16-hour work weeks that they had, right? Because they only were gathering enough nutrients for themselves, and they didn't have to support a parasitic ruling class, which every worker since the grain state has had to do, right? In, a, in that sense, that's the biggest uh, transformation that we're going to see. Although that transformation was partial, uh, it was a great minority of humanity uh, for most of what we would call history. And for example, 300 years ago only, right, the eve of the age of exploration, uh, merchant capital is expanding into a global network at that moment. But at that point, 300 years ago, two-thirds of humanity was still hunter-gatherers. Two-thirds of humanity was still hunter-gatherers, right? Uh, there's a good 2,000, 3,000-year gap between uh, the time when we have fire, animals, plants, everything domesticated, all the ingredients, all the uh, technology that we need for the grain state, and the time that the grain state actually arises. We know uh, from the bones of ancient hunter-gatherers and ancient peasants under the grain state that... Being a hunter-gatherer is much more healthy for you, especially for women, because they're apt to become iron deficient. And so a peasant women under the grain state become, uh, you know, not only is that the time historically when they're subordinated to men in a, in a way that they were not before, we find that they are physically smaller, they're physically less healthy, right? There's actually like a, a very material um, cause there. Uh, and that's because they have to spend all their time in the domus in the household uh, under a strict division of labor and uh, peasants in general male or female don't have time to go in the mountains searching for uh, all kinds of different nutrients from all different food webs and get a very varied diet right all they can really eat is grain and this dependence on grain has all kinds of effects 
The other aspect of our thought here on this podcast is dialectics, right? The word dialectic comes from Hegel, um, although the concept as it's broadly developed in modern thought is, uh, comes from a lot of other people more, right? But, um, so what Hegel actually says is that any proposition sort of contains its negation within it. If you develop a certain position to uh, far enough, you're going to find the opposite coming out somewhere, right? And this is just uh, what it, it gets developed um, into something that is a bit more like uh, uh, what I think is a universal uh, truth that is developed in world history more in the Eastern Hemisphere, right? Uh, what we might call Eastern thought. Um, I would be most familiar with Zen Buddhism as it's developed in China and Japan. Right. In China, it's called Chan Buddhism. It was more important in the Tang through the Song dynasties, right, 7th to 12th, 13th century. And, uh, but it's in Japan that it uh, has a decisive influence right down to the modern day, right? So we tend in an international context to call it Zen. Uh, but it, it's actually very, very dependent on Taoism, Taoist thought. Uh, within China, right, is, is one of two sort of strands that you could very broadly um, identify in, in Chinese philosophy. Of course, there's a lot more going on, but uh, Taoism is, is a bit more of the sort of chaos-loving uh, philosophy that sort of questions uh, neat and clean divisions of thought and, and uh, dogmatic metaphysical constructions, right? And... Uh, cuts down, right, uh, these kinds of rules, has a lot of poetic uh, resonance in the Zhuangzi, for example, right? Uh, Zhuangzi is, an, is a real ancient sort of contemporary, perhaps, of Confucius, or maybe just after, because he's always critiquing Confucius. And that had a huge influence on Chan Buddhism, right? And so we can find a certain, a certain development of that. There's a way in, the, in which this kind of questioning of values, revaluing of values, r recognition of metaphysical and very essentialized opposites, the way that they sort of blend into each other, one flips, they flip into each other, sort of. There's a way in which that really comes into its own under merchant capital. Uh, there's all kinds of capital metaphors, you know, particularly in Song Dynasty, uh, Zen dialogues, right? Um, they're called gong'an or like public public cases where some uh, great master of the past has been surrounded by sort of people who don't really get it, who are absorbed in buddhological, elaborate buddhological uh, fine distinctions, sort of trying to find trapped in in sort of uh, vine growths of words and language. Uh, and getting far away from sort of the, any kind of ma material reality, right? Actually getting um, to the thing itself, to the moment uh, that, we're, that we're living in, right? Uh, there's all kinds of great stories I could tell you. There's, there's one about, uh, you know, people are arguing whether a cat has Buddha nature or not. Well, this argument goes on forever, and the, and the great master comes in with an actual cat, and cuts the cat in half in front of everyone, and then they're sort of like enlightened in some way. Um, that's a cutting something open in Zen discourse is, is a common thing because um, it's supposed to show that there's no sort of essence inside. There's no like barcode there anywhere on a, anything that sort of says this is the essence of this thing and this is what it is. You know, sort of independent of anyone sort of uh, experiencing it. Uh, right? So like a tree is something different to me looking out of my window as opposed to if I'm sitting under it, as opposed to if I'm a beetle climbing on it and trying to eat sap from it and toss other beetles off of it or whatever, right? Uh, and there's no essence of the tree. If, if a scientist comes along and cuts the tree open, uh, they'll find all kinds of interesting things, you know, and maybe useful things for them at that moment. Uh, maybe at many moments, but uh, it's not going to be sort of ultimate, right? Um, the lack of ultimateness there does not have to lead to uh, you just being lost, though, because actually it really is about we cut away dead dead wood, we might say, um, 
I hope I'm not mixing that metaphor there. Uh, we cut away dead wood, and because we want to get to living sort of fresh, um, fresh greens, you know, uh, whenever we can. Uh, so, for example, there's another one where uh, some, they're trying to decide a new abbot for the monastery, and they're having a debate, sort of philosophical debate, to decide this. And uh, they're, they're philosophizing on the nature of water in a water jar, which they actually have in front of them in the room, right? They have a, a literal jar of water there. And there's all kinds of things to say from Buddhist philosophy about water, right? And the cook suddenly comes in and maybe accidentally... Um, kicks over the water jar and spills it on the floor. They're probably sitting on the floor, so maybe they're getting even get wet. And uh, the abbot, the old abbot, says, that's it. The cook, you've won the debate. You're the new abbot. That's because, like, the experience of seeing the water fall and, and spill, right, reminds us in a new way and gets us closer to the reality than all of this language that is trying to capture what we actually have in front of us. Right, so we, the point is getting to a kind of material reality in the moment um, and cutting away language, getting outside of language through some kind of performative intervention. And I would say that my friend uh, Mao Zedong is doing something similar when he says, where do correct ideas come from? Do they drop from the skies? No. Are they innate in the mind? No. They come from social practice and from it alone. They come from three kinds of social practice, the struggle for production, the class struggle, and scientific experiment. It is a person's social being that determines their thinking. Once the correct ideas characteristic of the advanced class are grasped by the masses, these ideas turn into a material force which changes society and changes the world. In their social practice, people engage in various kinds of struggle and gain rich experience both from their successes and from their failures. So that, that's going to be kind of the, the spring, the wellspring from which I will draw uh, my dialectical kind of energies, right? But that's going to be hand-in-hand hand with uh, an interest in the material. Uh, that's the point, to keep us in the material, to keep us at, you know away from abstract speculations and things, which often uh, actually serve the powerful, right? This is, this is a podcast that's interested in, you know, fighting the powers of the air, right? And bringing about the kingless generation. We need to organize in our time for a revolutionary change in relations of production. So, in the West, right, we have sort of the whole Abrahamic tradition, right, is a very interesting thing. Uh, you have more absolute ideas developed there, at least after the age of exploration. But originally, you do have, from the beginning, this idea of one... God who has created the universe and sort of cares what human beings do in some way. And you'll probably end up seeing the universe as something possessing an inherent order of some kind. Uh, that plays a certain role when you get to the scientific revolution, which really begins in what in Europe is called the Dark Ages. But at that time, actually, it's, this is the height of the uh, Islamic world, right? The Islamic world, and which actually has a very tolerant and peaceful kind of, you know, the, the most kind of rosy picture of that is uh, in a book called Lost Enlightenment, for example. You know, from uh, Al-Andalus, which is the Iberian Peninsula across North Africa, and well into the Silk Road, right? Islam is almost kind of born on the Silk Road among uh, trade, again, right? Uh, this is about the same time that Zen is actually being born, interestingly. Uh, I'd really like to think, I'd like to get more into the Quran and, and actually understand a bit more of it. Maybe we can do that together. But uh, that actually happens at the end of, you know, the Persian and Roman Empire sort of collapsing at, the, at a certain moment. Uh, right. And that brings me to another important power of the air, which is race, right? Racism. Uh, race as we know it is a product of early modernity, mostly. It's a product of early modernity and also a completely fictional notion of history that actually Europe is in the center of things in any sense uh, before the age of exploration, right? 
uh, ancient Rome, the very first thing that they did as soon as they could was move the capital to the east and link up with the Silk Road, get that silk, right? That was That is denounced by uh, traditionalist moralizing uh, philosophers in Rome and, and sought after by nearly everyone else. Uh, they moved to Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, the, ca- the capital of Turkey, of course, just as soon as they can, and, and really the ancient Greeks as well. If you read uh, Herodotus, um, Hippocrates, the father of medicine, also has a, a text called Lands, Heirs, and Places, where he talks about different kinds of people, and he has a racial, not ra- I don't want to say racial, a, a, an ethnic hierarchy sort of, Uh, of his own, thinking like, of course, the Greeks are the best, and he has a kind of idea that human beings are like bread that are baked in an oven by their climate, and, you know, uh, but for him, some of the worst people (laughs) are uh, hunter-gatherers, pastoralists, horse riders uh, in Europe, right? Uh, They're poorly developed and so on. We'll we'll discuss this maybe in detail, but... uh, and for Herodotus, the greatest things in, in the world are in Egypt, of course. And he mentions offhand that Egyptian people are black and have woolly hair, he says. So would be very much like the people that we would define as black today. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't have that concept because he's long before the age of exploration, obviously. Um, and you can tell already that I'm, I'm quite sympathetic to hunter-gatherers, but in terms of technological development or something, Europe is obviously not at the center of anything for the Greeks. That's my main point for the moment. We can learn a lot from accounts of hunter-gatherers by members of the grain state, right? Usually the grain state has a huge sort of anti-hunter-gatherer bias, which we have to sort of undo, suspend in our own thinking, right? We sort of, by default, share the, the assumptions that it would be so hard to be a hunter-gatherer and it would be, you know, you'd have to be moving around so much. Well, they didn't move around as much as we might imagine, for one thing. And they also had a very, very nice life, right, in terms of uh, nutrients, certainly, we can tell from their bones. And I would bet that they were happier. I would bet that they were a lot happier. You know, you, you need resources to be happy. Um, and But we can still tell from ancient Greek documents like Herodotus and Hippocrates that hunter-gatherers were uh, had more gender equality. They sort of see the, the men there as being too effeminate, and they hear about transgender uh, women and are think that that's... Hippocrates thinks that's horrible. Um among the Europeans is where that is, actually. Um, and that's more evidence of their sort of flabbiness and poor, they're, they're poorly cooked. You know, you can tell they're, they're uh, poorly developed because of their skin being white and all that, right? So actually, Abrahamism uh, is, uh, arises in, in Hellenistic culture, doesn't it, in a certain way, right? Even, even the original, one of the original ingredients, which would be Judaism, yeah, Hebrew culture, uh, goes through some very important developments and kind of s- consolidations at that time. All kinds of intellectual traditions were really consolidated in the Greek-speaking milieu of Alexander the Great's old empire, which stretches all the way to India. So you get uh, all kinds of texts in Greek which are attributed to authors of India and of Persia and of the Hebrews and of Egypt and, of course, uh, the Greek tradition. And this is actually very similar to the way that California Zen was created in the post-war kind of counterculture, uh, very, very closely connected to intelligence agencies and the military and everything. They, d- they made a sort of synthesis of all kinds of exotic knowledge, including things like Sufism as well, very much for sort of military and intelligence purposes. That's a whole interesting story. But the Greek tradition, right, which the kind of, you know, as I mentioned, the British Empire kind of view of history that comes from really from the 19th century would see only those Greek and Hebrew traditions as being, you know, what's Ben Shapiro's book, uh, Athens and Jerusalem, right? Uh, But of course, there's much more going on. And in fact, uh, Christianity, uh, big ingredients in Christianity are Egyptian religious ideas translated into Greek, which are known as the Hermetica, a particular god, Jehuti, uh, or, or Tote, right, is identified with Hermes, and so the texts about him are called Hermetica in, in Greek. 
it gets rediscovered in the modern period and sort of fetishized by the bourgeoisie, the capitalist class, as they're looking for some kind of uh, special new religion of their own. You know, I think they, it's an interesting question. Do the bourgeoisie have their own religion? But back in the Hellenistic period, uh, the Hermetica is one of actually, r- historically, that's actually one of the big ingredients. Actually, that plus Hebrew tradition around the figure of Jesus uh, sort of gives you Christianity, I would, I would say, right? But there, too, you can see that the centrality of Europe is a weird artifact of the 19th century. Again, British Empire, that's where it comes from, really. Uh, it's not in the fucking reality, Okay. So it only it, this this only begins to be real, right? With the age of exploration, when Europe suddenly, after being a total backwater, um, they kind of got their hooks with the Crusades. They got their hooks into uh, the Holy Land, right? They have uh, Crusader colonies actually going, and these kind of um, there's all kinds of interesting stuff happening there. People from mainly the Italian city states are the ones who end up running that trade network and that connection into the Silk Road. Again, the most important thing is to be connected to merchant capital. But suddenly you get the, uh, the so-called Reconquista, right? In some ways it's, it's not a re, you shouldn't have the re on there maybe because they were living all peacefully together and you get, even in some of the oldest sort of knightly texts, right? Like, uh, like uh, El Cantar del Mio Cid, right? The, the Cid, the Song of the Cid. Courtly chivalric romances, right? You get, uh, it's, it's a world before, actually, in, in so many ways. The, the very stark, like, Christians versus Muslims versus Jews uh, world. Christians versus Muslims and Jews, really, to, to say it. Um, you know, pogroms against Jews uh, really take off after the Crusades, after Europeans are starting to conceive of themselves as representing Christendom, yeah? So the Spanish and Portuguese just rocket out of Iberia with their cannons and their compasses and their astrolabes, and they go on uh, exploring and taking slaves and taking land and taking resources uh, on the basis of Legally speaking, it's on the basis of decisions made during the so-called Reconquista, where you know it's it's decided by the Pope and everything that it's okay to it's just war, right? Because if you're fighting in service of the tr- one true religion, uh, it's okay, of course, to take land. It's okay naturally to kill people because it's a just war, and it's even better to take them as slaves because then they could still be converted and go to heaven and all that. So they find pretty quickly that they're taking all these uh, black African slaves, right, who are pastoralists and, and you know, easy to take as slaves uh, as it happens. And then they need a justification for that, right? And gradually this kind of infidel uh, thing where you can, do, you can do these bad things to infidels morphs into blackness being a sort of mark of enslavability, and, of course, at the same time in the Reconquista, uh, you had whiteness also being valorized increasingly, right? Um, Christ- being an old Christian, at any rate, as opposed to uh, a con- recent convert from Islam or Judaism uh, in, in Spain and Portugal uh, will be associated with whiteness um, and uh, cleanness of blood, right? Limpieza de sangre. So, so this is another of these very important powers of the air, race, right? That comes into being at that time. And with the transfer of momentum in imperialism, early modern imperialism, from Iberia up to northern Europe, right? The Netherlands and England. You actually have an in, a doubling down on that anti-blackness because they don't even have the experience of sort of meeting uh, former Muslims, former Jews, um, conversos, as they're called, right, in Iberia. Um, and it's a much more foreign, kind of strange thing. You can see in, like, Shakespeare's The Tempest how uh, the, the sort of native um, character is depicted as being black and the son of witches and the devil, and there's an inherent kind of evilness there, um, right, a dehumanization, uh, which is in some ways stronger in British-style, um, right, Anglo colonies, around the world 
And then, of course, that all has super interesting uh, consequences for Japanese history as modern Japanese history becomes all about claiming a kind of honorary whiteness, right, and making Japan an honorary um, European country, you might say, but really it's about whiteness, isn't it? It's about whiteness and, and being able to run a, a settler colonial empire, which was very closely modeled on that of the United States, by the way, uh, just as were fascist Italy's settler project in northern Africa, right, particularly Ethiopia, and Nazi Germany had the whole Lebensraum thing where they were going to do their particular hybrid of slave society, working people to death, capital accumulation, primitive accumulation, just kind of taking dispossession, right? Dispossession of the sort of indigenous Slavic peoples uh, that had formed the population of the Soviet Union, right? Their plan, even even their uh, eager sort of Slavic uh, fellow fascists, their plan was to ultimately displace them and do precisely American style, actually. This is one thing I really want. Everyone is pointing that out these days, I, I think, I hope. You know, one that I just saw recently was that the laws of South African apartheid was were based on Canadian race laws. Good old nice Can- Canada, where recently they're finding all the bodies of indigenous children who were forced to go to special schools whose explicit model was to kill the Indian and save the man, etc. We know about these things, right, more and more today. And, of course, the Nuremberg laws that stripped citizenship rights from all non-Germans in Germany were also explicitly based on race law in the United States. And this is not to say that there's anything sort of not so bad about Nazi Germany and fascist Italy and Imperial Japan. It's just to say, actually, hey, wait a minute, we didn't uh, have any Holocaust films about African slaves and dispossessed indigenous peoples in the Americas back in the 90s. But we had, um, you know, the the Holocaust of the Nazis uh, is the only genocide that we're sort of allowed to, to really identify with and mourn maybe as we should, no doubt goes without saying, uh, but just not exclusively. And from our point of view, from the point of view of relations of production, we see that, and this is something you can get maybe better from me than would be to look, you want to look at the dig, right? You'll get interviews with all kinds of scholars releasing books about American history. And of course, the big, uh, one big development there is that people are realizing that slavery was always a really important part of capitalism, right? There's a book called Slavery's Capitalism. But there's this kind of special blend or rocket fuel uh, proprietary mixture, right, of industrial capitalism actually happening in the cities. And then you have your reserve army of labor where uh, you know, you have uh, dispossessed peasants who are desperate to work for a very low wage in those factories. Uh, but in the American context, you always have the frontier. And anyone who is white, um, of course, I, I have to, I always want to remind everyone, uh, 1952 is when finally whiteness stopped being a requirement for American citizenship. Up until that time, people of other ethnic backgrounds that we might well the definition of what actually whiteness is is extremely mysterious and it changes from time to time uh depending on the whims of any any given person but uh somebody uh who did not already have recognized american citizenship for whatever reason in order to get it would have to convince a judge that they were in some sense white and we have ethnically japanese uh indian there was a there's like an indian surgeon who has done all kinds of great work across the country and he even is able to say i was born very close to the caucasus mountains and a previous court case said that whiteness was uh being caucasian so i'm even sort of caucasian right but that wasn't successful the judge sort of said no yeah actually you're sorry you're not white uh but yeah if you were white you were entitled to free land right you can google you can find uh, the old posters that say for Indian land, good Indian land on the on the frontier. And you can apply and get it for free. And you can also just fucking go there and squat uh, on land that hasn't even been officially given 
uh, for white settlement, and pretty soon the army will come and protect you anyway, right? And we saw all kinds of graphic video of that process happening in Palestine just recently. You have those white settlers mobilized as a kind of fighting force and police force at all times. That's part of what uh, the gun craze in the United States is all about. So maybe that American structure, which is then appropriated by various fascist uh, governments or other fascist governments, uh, is new, a new kind of hybrid. And that's where it gets some of its power. Uh, and it's, it's continuing, it's continued to develop today, right, in, in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. That co- those kind of wilder elements, the frontier and the war zone and the slavery, uh, help to relieve a lot of the pressure that's created by monopolization of the actual kind of productive sector of the economy, right, and financialization. And I think we're seeing a new round of that today. Uh, on the other hand, it's always worth uh, doing a kind of, perhaps some of these things actually exist from the beginning. Actually, from the beginning, uh, there's all kinds of primitive accumulation, right? That was what enclosure was, right, that, that kicked the peasants off the land. It's not as if those first CEOs in Britain all uh, started lift them, lifted themselves up by their bootstraps and started their companies all in their mom's garages or something, right? Moving back to merchant capital, right? It's always interesting to... There are several times in Japanese history when the capital was almost moved to the west of the country. Uh, there's almost a second capital somewhere in Kyushu or um, the we- the western tip of, of Honshu there, Yamaguchi, right? Uh, different times, different clans sort of run uh, all kinds of trading operations with the continent. And that never becomes the central thing, Right. But if, uh, like the Roman Empire, uh, Japan had ever done that, Japanese history would be very different. It's interesting to think about that. But as it stood, right, Japan did not really have much contact with merchant capital and remained a very pure grain state um, in, in some respects. I, I mean, it, peasants and, uh, like the historian Amino Yoshihiko has shown how uh, peasants used money. They went on long uh, trading voyages in private ships and stuff, but it's it doesn't become a sort of central activity, right? Uh, so you actually have then from Iberian from the Iberian contact uh, on. I, one of the things that I want to say is that Japan has breathed sort of some of the same air then as uh, the Iberian imperialists and uh, the Dutch imperialists, obviously too. The English were here too. And they're on some kind of similar cycle, you know, they're on some kind of similar wavelength, even if like the, uh, they're mirror, mirror waves sometimes. But uh, in the Edo period, right, the period of like so-called isolation, although that uh, is not apt, right? Actually, there's lots and lots of international contact in Edo period Japan. Um, it's just on a real particular model that the British and Americans in the 19th century really didn't like, and all their sort of anti-Edo um, period rhetoric has become the vocabulary of Japanese history. But actually, during the, the Tokugawa period, there's an interesting hybrid period where you still have that old grain state economy, a rice economy, where the aristocrats get a certain amount of rice every year, right? But then you have a money economy as well, and in parallel, the the merchant classes and craftspeople uh, keep on gaining more capital, actually, than the samurai, and they have to keep uh, being beaten down. There's a really um, interesting kind of transitional period to capitalism, and actually, even by the end of that, you have things like trading in rice futures at a certain place in Osaka, and you even have up in the northeast... Um, labor being commodified, labor power being commodified should be the, the, one of the defining characteristics of industrial capitalism, right? 
and that's when right we have production centralized in a factory or something and the owner of the factory or the company or whatever is uh, gets the profits and the big profits come because uh, you have all these workers who are dispossessed off their land right peasants who are on their land can always just grow food and live right um, actually under feudalism or the grain state you can you have to pay a certain amount in taxes every year but after that whatever you make as a peasant uh, is yours uh, in general right and it's actually the reverse under industrial capital uh, you know all these peasants who uh, were dispossessed of their land in the enclosure movement in Europe so now all of these former peasants have to go into big cities like London and they're desperate to sell their labor power that's all they have to survive they have to get a job and their wages that drives wages down so those wages are going to be really low and then if you're working in a factory even today you work in a factory in Shenzhen making iPhones or something say uh, and you make the same amount worth of iPhones as your wage is going to be for that day and after that you're basically working for the benefit of uh, the owner the owners who get that surplus value and that but that system of commodification of labor actually happens in northeastern Japan in the early 19th century so but back in the grain state right uh, the most likely scenario is actually that class rule and therefore the state to keep that class rule stable and to keep the ruling class on the top was imposed forcefully. It was imposed forcefully. One of the final defenders of the grain state in the world in 1825, you have Aizawa Seishisai, the Japanese Confucian uh, scholar of the Mito school of Jushiist Confucianism, right? Uh, is try is faced with growing merchant and industrial capital and modern imperialism by growing great powers like Britain and Russia, which was still uh, imperial Russia was still kind of in even competition with Britain at that moment, and he's all ta he's the last defender, the rear guard of the grain state. Uh, he's talking about we just need to get the Get the, keep the warriors back on the land for one thing, stop them gathering in the cities. Uh, he's uh, 20 years or so before Marx, but he is pointing out some of the same things about financialization and the role of money. Rather than just getting their stipend in rice and using the rice to feed their retainers who are bonded to them by a feudal kind of bond of loyalty, the samurai get their rice and they immediately change it into money and then that, use that money to buy all their commodities in their cities where they actually live and have their mansions and put on their big parties to show to keep up appearances and so on right and so he's sort of we have to get back to the land we have to restore feudalism and then we will make more rice right um and and please our august ancestor amaterasu right uh, you'll find that, of course, there's a particular kind of religion that grows from the grain state. We'll see that quite a lot in this podcast. Uh, the, and, and he says, okay, so my point here is that uh, the grain state is imposed by force. Even he at the end is saying uh, at one point, keeping peasants on the land by spear point or something and making them grow that grain uh, right, because he again he thinks that if only we can just grow enough rice, you know, we'll we'll really max out rice production, then we can defeat uh, growing in international imperialism and capital. So he says at one point it, it would be possible for a generation maybe to force people to do things at spear point, but you really have to get them believing in the entire structure that uh, they they live under, and that's a basic point that perhaps the the US government was researching as well there's all kinds of you know the whole uh, the stuff about UFOs and whatever else uh, seems to be cover for all kinds of human experimentation that was happening in the 1970s and 1980s where people who were starting new religions and kind of hippie communes and stuff 
uh, were either indirectly or directly connected to intelligence agencies, and they seem to have been researching some of these dynamics of sort of how does a leader start to found a hierarchical community and get people to sort of follow him uh, or it's him, yeah, not her, probably. So there's nothing natural about the grain state, and from the beginning we have this very kind of perverse uh, class rule, right, which is, is this new thing where some human beings are domesticating other human beings. And this begins to some extent uh, with hunter-gatherers and pastoralists. As soon as really there's surplus, right? As, long, as soon as there's surplus, then someone can appropriate it and claim it. We might call that primitive accumulation. That's an important idea, right? You imagine some kind of primitive scene where there are just resources in and the land and every anyone can take can and does take what they need and then one person sort of says no this is mine and only mine and you can't have it you generally can't do that if you know you kill a wildebeest or whatever and you don't have a refrigerator you don't have any way to preserve it everyone has to eat it right now or else it'll go bad right and there are hunter-gatherers that, especially once they, they have easy enough access to resources that they start having surplus, then they do uh, start to actually dominate each other, right? But back in the grain state, the situation is that probably, right, there's no actual uh, benefit to the peasants to join the grain state. They would, they're much better off being hunter-gatherers, and they actually go back to being hunter-gatherers whenever these states collapse. That happens again and again. Uh, of course, our historical sources, once again, are always going to come from whatever the next kind of dynasty is that rises, you know. Uh, and so Middle Kingdom Egyptian sources will talk about the first intermediate period after the demise of the Old Kingdom in a very negative way. And, oh, it's so good that we restored order and all of that, right? Same thing with in China. You have the Zhou coming after the collapse of the Shang and... They, uh, they have the, it's actually they that come up really with the idea of the mandate of heaven or Tianming to say that, you know, the Shang lost the mandate of heaven and that's why they collapsed and now that's why we've come. And isn't it great, right, that we restored the grain state? Uh, but of course, somebody said that uh, the Great Wall of China was probably built just as much to keep uh, taxpayers and serfs in the state as to keep barbarians, uh, you know, so-called barbarians, hunter-gatherers, and pastoralists out, right? Oh, and there's all kinds of interesting uh, back and forth between on the, the frontiers of these grain states always. Uh, certain hunter-gatherers specialize to become slavers. Uh, there's, of course, the whole story of um, perhaps one of the entities that sort of becomes like the, the Russian people uh, the Viking Rus actually are uh, taking enslaving people from northern Europe, you know, precisely uh, that island of Britain, which will rule the world in the 19th century. Uh, also Ireland, Denmark. Uh, there are particular archaeological finds that, that show particular people. We see lots of coins, coinage from, in fact, the Muslim world because the Viking Rus were taking people from there, kidnapping them, and selling them uh, to the Muslim world. There's some great chronicles of uh, Muslim traders in India, China, and among the Viking Rus that give us, uh, again, another view of a sort of um, uh, Silk Road trader meeting with hunter-gatherers who, again, are more of those Europeans that we tend to think of as ruling the world and all that. But uh, uh, at this point, they're, they're very much uh, hunter-gatherers, right? Um, if we wanted to be a little bit snobbish about it, we could. Um, there's all kinds of things about how sort of unsanitary they are. But that's interesting. Uh, it's actually the, uh, the grain state becomes just, I mean, it's an engine of domestication, right? First of all, um, most importantly, not first in time, but uh, domestication of human beings, right, by other human beings. But we also have even microbes, you know, viruses evolving to, to live in these closely uh, condensed, you know, uh, 
settlements that very quickly grow into cities and towns and all that, right? Even our modern supply chain today is giving rise to new diseases, and that happened before. But whereas hunter-gatherers um, may have, to uh, grain state eyes or to class society eyes, uh, lower standards of, of hygiene, whatever, but that's just because they don't need them. They actually won't get sick because they don't uh, have those cramped conditions and things. Uh, of course, you know, when you get uh, the Colombian exchange of plants, animals, and microbes between Europe and the Americas, you get a whole bunch of people who have no immunity to all of these super powerful diseases that, uh, you know, the Eurasian continent had been uh, incubating all this time and it's just unleashed, right? So you can definitely say that it's the grain state and it's class society that is an engine of pathogens in that sense, right? Again, as all of this stuff, you know, I'm not saying this because I'm some kind of a primitivist, right? Um, I just think we can learn all kinds of things if we look at all different historical societies through this lens, which is materialist and it's dialectical, right? We think flexibly, we don't think metaphysically, uh, and we also look at the material first of all, right? We're going to also use all kinds of poetic and spiritual and uh, sort of higher, <laughs> as, as people normally say, um, reasoning, right? But of course, we're also thinking whenever the, the human mind is soaring in the heights and the, your brain is a galaxy brain, uh, what's happening in your belly and your genitals and your bank account and your wallet and, and all that. And we look at relations of production first and foremost. What is your relationship? What work do you do and what resources do people get in society? And I hope that all of this deep knowledge of the history of class struggle can empower us to organize actively in our own time for change in relations of production and so for this first time for this first session i hope i've i think i've been a bit unmoored from particular primary materials which is where i would usually like to keep it i think but i wanted to give you a kind of great overview of the landscape as i see it uh, and starting next time i think we'll start very very early long at least as long before ancient Greece and Rome, uh, as as ancient Greece and Rome is is uh, distant from us in time, in ancient Sumer, ancient Mesopotamia, where we get some of the earliest writing, uh, which again writing grows from a kind of spreadsheet accounting systems for gathering taxes. So you only get it under the grain state, interestingly. Um, and that will be that'll be directed toward our goal, right? Which is to not to return to some primitive past, of course, but we are going to use all of the technologies and all of the uh, labor labor saving devices and automation uh, of means of production and leisure time, the ability to develop each person uh, to to the fullest, to be creative to be, um, to actualize, right, as many people as we can by means of a revolutionary change in relations of production, which is now really becoming possible. We can see it on the horizon with the current state of the productive forces. This is, this is my drive, you know. We actually need to make something new here. In that sense, I'm not a moralist either. I'm not saying that there is some god who absolutely guarantees that this is the one right way. If you believe in God, I think that's probably fine, as long as your god is really the god of humanity and not, in fact, one of the many rulers and powers of the air, the archons that we have to fight against, because there are gods that are really patriarchy in disguise or the grain state in disguise or capital in disguise right uh, or data in disguise perhaps we may have many of these false gods but for myself although I embrace the genuine power of religion I my starting point would be a more thoroughgoing materialism 
And maybe kind of like in Zen where the teaching is that there is no teaching. We are free to accomplish whatever we want to accomplish. It's, it's good news, right? The kingdom of God is among you. It's precisely because I think we as human beings are free to value what we want to value. And all the history of exploitation and class rule is not natural. It's not universal. There's nothing inevitable about it. We can end it. There was a time before when it didn't exist. And if we survive, I'm fairly confident there will come a time when it is gone. So maximum self-actualization, communal actualization, right? Uh, all those galaxy brain art, you know, when I'm choosing art for this podcast too, I, I wanted sort of galaxy brain uh, stuff and kind of vaporwave stuff. But you can, you can only find very individualistic uh, galaxy brain pictures. I would, have, I would love to see a kind of fractal of human brains kind of self-actualizing all together. If uh, anybody is, is an artist out there would like to create something like that for this podcast, uh, I'd like to buy that and use it. But I think it's increasingly clear to everyone, really, that our, cla- our choice is, as someone said, between uh, socialism or barbarism. Uh, really might be socialism or extinction, right? So organize. That's what I want to say to you more than anything else. Reach out to people who are near you in real life. But also you can organize with me online. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Irregnata, I-R-R-E-G-N-A-T-A. That's unruled in Latin. Feminine singular. And at the same address on patreon.com where you can support this podcast for a very low proletarian price. I will offer full access to all of our episodes going forward, which might be every other one or so. Uh, First of all, what I want to do is go through very roughly sort of every major phase of uh, relations of production that I would see in human history going on down, maybe up to the present. And then we'll go back and go back in much more detail and and skip around and maybe focus in certain areas at certain times. I would love to have guests on this show. I would love to have maybe even co-hosts. Nihongo ni yoru episodo ni tsuite mo sekkaku na no de tsukuritai to omotteru desu ga yahari konna boku bakkari dewa naku bogo washa no もう一人のコーホストがその場合、やっぱり必要だと思うので、そういう方が見つかり次第、日本語によるエピソードをするか、それともまったく別のフィード、別のポッドキャストを作れたらいいなと思ってるので、ぜひ。So definitely it would be great if I could also do episodes or maybe a whole different show in Japanese, which would maybe be similar, but I think. In that case, I would really want to have a native speaker as a co-host, uh, and we can go through together, sort of maybe comment on the, uh, the English that I've already made, maybe. And, of course, I would be planning to do all the usual things on Patreon, like AMAs, uh, episodes, whatever, and also whatever you'd like, right? We can interact. This should be interactive, and it should be centered on, uh, I would hope, working people, workers around the world, who are interested in the deep history of class struggle. In any case, the prerequisite for any of that, of course, is, is the show has to develop a following. So uh, definitely uh, stay tuned and tell your friends, spread the word. And I think we can really fulfill a need that is maybe not being fulfilled. Pre-modern literature, religion, ideology with attention mainly to relations of production from a dialectical materialist point of view. You know, the people who think in this way that I'm trying to think here are usually only deal with modern things, but we're going to go pre-modern, right? As much of the planet will perhaps go pre-modern very soon. So this could be useful in all kinds of ways that uh, we can't even predict right now, I would hope. So let's, let's get going on it. And with that, I'm Fergal Schmoodlock, and I have anointed you with the anointing of the kingless generation. 
赤い炎旗高く水平線に翻り光と使命を担い立つ三百万の兄弟は今やどれの手さたち自由のために戦わん赤い炎旗高く水平線に翻り光と使命を担い立つ三百万の兄弟は今やどれの手さたち自由のために戦わん